Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Alexander Bohr. He is a postdoc at the Central European University Democracy Institute's research group on the and re-democratization and the visiting professor at CEU Vienna. He received an MA in political science at the CEU in 2012 and a PhD in political science at Aarhus University in 2018, where he also worked as a postdoc until 2022. His research focuses on how the human mind navigates social and political challenges like political polarization, online political hostility, the COVID-19 pandemic, or selecting and evaluating political leaders. His work integrates insights from political behavior, social and evolutionary psychology, and public health. And apart from that, I would just like to mention that he was part of two large projects supported by the Carlsberg Foundation, the uh, ROPH, Research on Online Political Hostility Project, where they investigate the causes and consequences of hostility and fake news sharing in online political discussions, and the HOPE, H-O-P-E, How Democracies Cope with COVID-19, where they monitor how societies respond to the coronavirus pandemic. And today we're going to talk a little bit about all of that. So, Dr. Bohr, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thanks for having me. So, let's start with uh, online political hostility. So, first of all, uh, I've already talked, of course, a little bit about this with other people on the show, like Sasha Altai, Sander van der Linden and others. What predicts the sharing of fake news on social media and particularly Twitter? Right. So, um, what our research have uh, done on this uh, question is basically um, trying to, to combine two uh, tools which usually are kept separate in this research domain and one is actual behavioral data from Twitter, who is sharing what types of news, and the other is validated, uh, psycho psychometrically validated psychological scales. So basically what we did in this research is uh, uh, hire a bunch of uh, respondents uh, who are on Twitter, Americans, uh, US Americans, and, and ask them questions in surveys about their psychological dispositions and attitudes, uh, but also link this data uh, to their Twitter behavior. So, so we were able to, to have like this broad uh, picture of, of, of the psychological differences between the people who, who share news and share misinformation uh, uh, and those who don't. And, and we were thinking in terms of three broad categories, which previous research has, has uh, discussed that could contribute to the sharing of misinformation. Uh, and one is, is a broad topic related to ignorance, uh, right? That it basically says that these people just like are, are not very literate. They don't really know their way around the internet. They, 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 are, they are old, they're confused. They, they, they're not very reflective cognitively, right? So that's one uh, group of uh, like uh, variables. The, the second group is related to theories of disruption. 
So, so the idea here is there are some people who just like to cause chaos, uh, right? So trolls, right, are these kind of folks, right? So they do, they like, they cause harm for fun uh, on a more political um, uh, domain. We are often talk about cynicism, right? People who think that like the whole politics is corrupt and politicians are not really looking after the people's good. Um, so that's these are the concepts related to disruption and and the third uh, broader uh, uh, group of, of of variables which we looked at was polarization, right? So here the idea is that at uh, particularly in the United States there are these two big political camps, Democrats and Republicans, uh, and increasingly they really don't like each other, right? So the, there are positive and negative aspects of this, right? You like your in-group, uh, and and you 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 dislike your out-group, and and we used all these different variables to look into both who is sharing misinformation, who is not, and who is sharing news, like mainstream political news, and who's not, and and what we found that all of these uh, matter uh, to some extent, right? So, uh, but but the strongest influence uh, in our data is is is, is wielded by polarization and particularly uh, outgroup negative effects. So, so the the people who share the most misinformation are those uh, who who hate the out party, who hate the the other party, right? Uh, and in particular, because there's this known asymmetry in the United States that that Republicans share uh, most. Uh, misinformation, it is the biggest offenders of misinformation sharing are uh, Republicans or like people who hate the Democrats. Um, but it's kind of interesting, I think, maybe I, I can add that, that we didn't find a stark difference between uh, the sharing of news and the sharing of uh, of misinformation, so mainstream and misinformation, right? And maybe that makes sense if you if, if we try to think with the with the mind of, uh, of 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 actual citizens, right? For us researchers, uh, it's like we, we get the data set where things are labeled as misinformation and, and and the mainstream news, and we are like extremely extremely literate about these things. Uh, so so we we are prone to to think about these as different animals. But from a from a from regular user. Uh, it's it's not black and white. It's it's a scale, right? It's like all gray, and and uh, and we've seen that the same people who who are sharing a lot of misinformation um, are actually also sharing uh, a lot of mainstream news and a lot of hyperpartisan news, right? Uh, so so there is this interesting continuum between uh, between misinformation and fake news uh, and and mainstream news from from the user's perspective. Mm -hmm. When it comes to partisan polarization, particularly, this is a very interesting phenomenon and people have been studying it a lot, of course, in the context of the US. But when it comes to that topic, what kinds of questions are you mostly interested in? Well, um, basically, um, I'm interested, uh, there like partisan polarization and like societal polarization, right? Like conflicts between different factions. 
and grooves in society i think it's it's a very juicy research topic and we know it's like it's it's like both decision makers and regular people are concerned about uh this topic uh and of course most of the research focuses uh on the us but it's by no means limited um to the, to the united states yeah. uh, so i just recently uh, moved home to hungary uh, and joined the democracy institute and one of the current research interests that i have is related to um to polarization in hungary uh, which is also an extremely polarized country and and how basically uh polarization does not only contribute uh potentially to to various forms of hostility right and sharing misinformation and, and hostile rumors uh but also to 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 reduce support for democracy right so like democratic backsliding is an issue in hungary uh and and we see that like once different camps in society become very antagonistic uh the the rules of the democratic game uh are are increasingly um Easy, like more and more easily um, violated, uh, and that's that's my current interest, for example. Mm -hmm. And talking specifically about online political hostility, what does the term refer to exactly, and what explains the phenomenon? Right. I mean. Um, depends i guess uh the 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 project i was working on uh, roph which we pronounce rough uh with a bit of uh uh freedom uh of interpretation there we were thinking about hostility very broadly right in the project so we think misinformation is a form of hostility uh sharing misinformation right uh um also like uh rumors which might not need to resemble like news and misinformation that's that's also another form of uh political hostility uh of course there is a link between uh online and offline political hostility and like organizing violent protests and these kind of stuff are also uh, online political hostility but uh in a more narrow sense we have a paper which which looks into specifically um offensive and harmful comments in political discussions so these are uh, the political di these are discussions about politics broadly defined social issues uh right and and between citizens regular lay people uh and we know that some that, like quite often these discussions uh don't go very well right um to say the least uh, there were there were these these beautiful hopes that once the internet will enable everyone to join the democratic uh, discussion uh, will just like level society and you won't need gatekeepers anymore all right everyone can say what they want and and instead what seems to be happening is that everyone is like agreeing that that discussions about politics and social issues on the internet are particularly toxic in civil uh often offensive and harmful and we we really try to understand why that's the case mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, why do some people share offensive statements on the internet right so it's a great, great question and and there is a very popular answer uh to it uh, which which we called the mismatch hypothesis 
um, uh, building on this evolutionary psychological idea that that our our mind has evolved to do certain things, and when you when you give it cues which are extremely different uh, from the from the environment where it evolved, then then it's going to cause trouble, right? So so uh, so our 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 uh, uh, our love of sugars, right, is a is a good example of mismatch. Like sugar used to be very rare, now it's uh, supermarket is full of sugar, so we are uh, becoming increasingly obese. Uh, and 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 basically, we can translate this idea to um, to to the online political hostility, right? Because this, we discussed a lot that actually, um, of course, we are evolved to face-to-face -face interactions, right? Uh, that's that's what we we are used to, and 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 there are few important things about these face-to-face -face interactions, uh, which which were dominant before internet, uh, right? They are between people who usually know each other, uh, mm -hmm. right? There is reputation. Um, it's it's very rich in nonverbal cues, right? Um, uh, uh, they're like I'm, I'm not just talking. I'm I'm using my face, my hand. Uh, and uh, and and of course we are in the same uh, same uh, uh, physical space. So like uh, I mean, uh, I know that if I make you very angry, you might uh, want to slap me, uh, right? So and then of course the internet is extremely different from that. Uh, there is it's extremely easy to be anonymous on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. to, to to not to completely conceal who you are, not to worry about reputation at all. Uh, it's extremely um, uh, the the cues are not uh, rich at all, right? I have very we have very often only text, not even voice, uh, and not no nonverbal cues. Um, so so the the idea goes that well, uh, it's just there's something about the internet which makes people uh, hostile or jerks. There is this uh, meme, uh, the the gift. Uh, hypothesis uh, it's not very professional uh, so we didn't use it in the paper but I really like it it's the greater internet fuckwad theory uh, which is this written cartoon which says that a normal person plus anonymity plus audience uh, equals uh, jerk uh, essentially right so so we basically went out to test this theory mm -hmm. uh, is there is this really the case that that people who are extremely who have an easy time keeping their cool and being civil in face-to-face -face, uh, offline interactions uh, uh, more often get into trouble, so to speak, on the internet. And and to be honest, to our surprise, uh, we found uh, basically no convincing evidence for this theory. Uh, right. So what we found was an extremely high correspondence between uh, acts of political hostility uh, online and offline. Uh, so the same people who who who, who admit to be um, to to be offensive, to be harmful, to make offensive jokes. Uh, we we measure the broad range of uh, behaviors from uh, from offensive jokes to to actually harassment. Um, and, and we don't find either a qualitative or a quantitative asymmetry between online and offline spaces. Um, and and uh, we so so basically, who is who is uh, who is offensive then? 
Well, we, we again used various psychological uh, uh, measures. And, and the most uh, important which stood out for us was this concept called status-driven risk-taking. And, and basically the idea here is that um, there are people who are willing to do risky stuff to get status. So the, so the items in the scale are, are including like, oh, I would risk my life to get a huge uh, sum of money, or I would enjoy being famous, even if it meant that I could get assassinated, right? And of mm -hmm. course, very few people are all out and uh, uh, enthused about this kind of uh, statement. But there is a nice distribution of people. Like some people would entertain the idea uh, of, of participating in a risky medical uh, experiment if it meant a million dollars cash, mm -hmm. uh, and others are not at all. And and what we find is that um, people who are higher on this status-driven risk-taking scale uh, are more interested in politics in general, and they're also uh, much more often uh, offensive in these discussions than those those who are low in in, in this status during risk taking. Mm -hmm. So, in this case, uh, to understand online political hostility, it's better to look at individual psychology. Is that it, or oh. right? Yeah. So it's. I mean. It's interesting uh, because, of course, there are different ways to look at this. And some mm -hmm. of the influential previous research uh, looked at temporal differences, like like when are you more hostile? Uh, mm -hmm. And we we and and then they found that like pe when people are tired, uh, for example, uh, then they are more hostile. Mm -hmm. And then then there was the, the, the bottom line was, oh, anyone can become a troll, uh, right? And 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 of course, we are looking at a slightly different. Uh, research question, uh, but but what we find is that indeed there are just some people who are uh, who are more predisposed to be offensive. It doesn't mean that they are offensive in all the time. In general, uh, we we've looked at the U.S. and Denmark in this research, uh, and and we find that that and and as one would imagine, maybe the U.S. in the U.S. people are more uh, offensive on average than in Denmark, um, even in the US, uh, um, most people are like occasional uh, uh, violators of norms, right? Uh, there are very few people who are offensive all the time, which which makes good sense, perhaps. Um, but, but still, there are important interpersonal differences, predispositions uh, in, in, in who 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 is offensive, and I think that has important implications for how to solve this problem, because a lot of the current discussions are uh, talking about like algorithms and, and platforms, right? And of course, it's easier to change an algorithm um, than to change humans. Um, but but our research uh, implies that it might um, indeed be fruitful to think that okay. Maybe we need uh, social media platforms to identify people and, and ban certain people, even though it, of course, violates uh, like ideals of, of freedom uh, of speech. Um, and, and it kind of also means that like, if we see an increase in, in hostility, uh, which 
I mean, we may or may not be uh, seeing. It depends on the place and the time scale. But but very often, uh, I think uh, hostility, online hostility, is like a, a mirror into social problems. Uh, and of course, politicians uh, like to talk about the, the the responsibility of the platforms, right? But in a sense, sometimes maybe the the trouble is bigger, uh, and and there are like there's real social tensions uh, which 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 need to be addressed uh, to to completely um, remove the problem and not just the symptoms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So let's talk now about the work you've done on the COVID-19 pandemic and several of its political and psychological aspects. So, of course, this has been a prolonged health crisis. It's still ongoing, really. But uh, anyway, the, even the, the part during which we were Uh, in lockdowns and there were lots of restrictions in place it was uh, it went for two years or or something like that so it was very complicated for many people the people have been using the term pandemic fatigue and others like that so um, from what you've studied how can elf authorities motivate the public with health advice during a prolonged health crisis like uh, COVID-19, for example? Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question to what extent uh, authorities can uh, influence stuff. Uh, I think a lot of it boils down to how people are and how people behave. But of course, uh, again, that's very difficult to change. Uh, and and uh, whereas as this advising authorities is, is easier. So I completely uh, understand interest in that question. And and it's kind of funny because the way uh, we, we ended up doing research on the COVID pandemic was that that our, our PI, our, our principal investigator, Michael bank Peterson, wrote an essay uh, early in the pandemic um, in a Danish newspaper, uh, which I then which which then got uh, translated uh, into a bunch of languages, and I helped to translate and and uh, um, basically. Translate both in a literal sense and in a cultural sense for a Hungarian context. Uh, and basically, the, the title of the essay was that the, the the unpleasant truth is the best protection against the coronavirus. Uh, and I think that and basically the idea was that this is like February or uh, of 2020, mm-hmm. uh, when everyone was downplaying the, the the coronavirus, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's we know about it, but you don't have to worry. It's going to be fine. And of course. Very soon we we realized that it was not going to be fine, but but there is this there was this reaction and instinctive reaction from from many uh, authorities and I think like political like political leaders are worse uh, at this than health authorities, uh, right? Trump have has has explicitly admitted that he was downplaying it, but there is this paternalistic instinct that like yeah we shouldn't we shouldn't make people worried, right? Like, um, and of course, that that led to terrible consequences because um, the, soon, the sooner people were told that this is actually a major concern, 
the 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 more severe uh, the pandemic got. Um, so so one of the broad uh, themes which emerged again and again in our work was to to treat to 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 to, uh, to treat citizens as adults basically to to the the the, the job of the health authorities in our view is to empower people right uh, mm -hmm. to be honest and, and use transparent uh, communication uh, to build the trust uh, and then to uh, build self-efficacy so to speak the like this these uh, feelings that um, that actually there is a problem uh, let's be honest but you uh, uh, can do something and it's in your power to 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 solve this uh, or to make it better even though the pandemic is this huge thing in the entire uh, globe right so it, it seemed to matter little what I do as an individual, right? And it, it can be pretty uh, uh, suffocating. But but I think an important thing which, which the health authorities needed to do is to say, like, no, actually, it matters what you do, and, and please do, and please distance, and please vaccinate. Um, and and what so that's what they should do. What they shouldn't do, probably, or, or to be very careful about doing is 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 to antagonizing uh, and, and and moralizing the issue. I think that's a it's a much more dangerous tool because it can be effective in the short term, but it also leads to all sorts of um, uh, troubles down the line, which we may discuss. I guess. Yes, we will get into the moralization part as well later on. But before that, uh, when it comes to making people comply to the health advice given by the health authorities, does fear work? Right. Oh, it does. It's, 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 very, it's a very good motivator in a sense, uh, right? I mean, uh, we've seen it throughout the pandemic. And, and of course, as you say, it's like we, we were lucky to get a, a, a grant very early in March of 2020. And then we were doing very intense work for like uh, two and a half years. Um, so we, when we started, and 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 basically we 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 worked throughout the different phases of the pandemic. So when we started, our primary um, interest was physical distancing and like lockdowns, right? That's mm -hmm. that was what yeah. we did in in the spring of 2020, at least in most countries, right. uh, definitely in Denmark where I was based. Um, and and we were wondering like, okay, who is keeping distance? Uh, physical distance, right? Who is observing the hygiene uh, requirements? Mm -hmm. um, and we've and we found that, like as as we know from prior literature, that like people who are concerned about the pandemic, uh, people who are more affected personally, which meant the elderly, particularly in this uh, 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 pandemic, they were very um, good at at complying with the health advice. But then again. Appealing to fear is has its limits, right? We know that it has uh, important mental health costs, right? Like if you if you just like terrify people, they will they will be extreme. They can get extremely anxious, depressed. Um, it is of course also has these uh, potential uh, costs in terms of in increasing the acceptance of and democratic treatments uh, of other groups. So. So we were thinking, okay, the fear route is clear, uh, but is there another route? Uh, and uh, and indeed, we found uh, that there is 
uh, and and that route is about again self-efficacy, which is basically a part of knowledge, right? About mm -hmm. how specific measures can can protect uh, against COVID-19. Yeah. But also, it's not just knowing what to do, uh, uh, but also feeling capable, feeling capable of of following that advice. Uh, so so if I know what to do and I know that I can do that, that really helped. Uh, people to to comply, and we we, we measured these things again in surveys, uh, and found that those who have the knowledge and those who have these feelings of uh, self-efficacy uh, were were very compliant. Uh, and an interesting thing uh, which we found is that that those who have these high levels of self-efficacy don't need fear, which is a seems like a normatively desirable place to be, right? Like you don't have to be concerned. Uh, um, maybe the, 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 the levels of infection are not very high uh, in your area. Maybe uh, you're personally not at risk because you're young and healthy, uh, right? So even if you're not concerned specifically, maybe the health, health uh, maybe you think rightly or wrongly that the health system is doing an excellent job, uh, which was the case in some places more than others. Uh, so even if you're not concerned, but you think you know what to do and you feel capable of doing that, then, then, then they did... Uh, comply, which which seems like a particularly sweet uh, place mm -hmm. to be. Uh, and what about when it comes to communicating hope? Can that work? And if so, how should health authorities and governments go about doing it? Right. Yes. So so this this uh, question about hope uh, came up. Uh, sometime in, in late 2020 or early 21. Um, uh, it, it's the name of the project, funnily enough. But but also, uh, if you recall, there was this, uh, the big first wave usually, right? And then things are almost were getting kind of better. Um, mm -hmm. And then the variants started to come in. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically when, when uh, and, and our research project, uh, we, we were like this were a group of political scientists doing survey research, but we also had different units within the uh, within the project in different universities of, of social media experts and and actually data scientists. Um, and uh, and when we saw that the the variants are coming, uh, we realized that, and we were also monitoring societies across eight countries, uh, and we saw that like. Okay, people know that alpha back then uh, is here, but they are not so concerned about it, uh, and they don't feel that they need to change their behavior, right? I mean, if if there was no alpha by some miracle, right, maybe we would have uh, had it over by then. Um, so the idea was to say, okay, we need to warn people, like find a way to warn people, but then what should the message be? And and we and it was a super exciting. Uh, project with very different, uh, very interdisciplinary uh, large group. And basically, um, the people who know how to model the epidemic used actual um, epidemic models to, to, to come up with the modified version of the famous flatten the curve graph. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we basically, and, and a professional designer drew two, two versions of this graph. Uh, one was what we call the threat condition, which showed that well, the, the 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 level of hospitalization is going down right now, 
and and it would go down if if there was no new variant, right? But that, unfortunately, there is one. Uh, and and what we predict to happen is that hospitalization is going to uh, uh, skyrocket and it will surpass the uh, health system capacity uh, very soon. Um, and 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 we need stronger uh, uh, preventive measures uh, to 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 address the situation. Uh, so that was the threat condition to say, well, it, there's going to be huge trouble unless we act. Uh, uh, and and then there was another version of this message, which basically drew the entire curve, which was like, okay, indeed, it, it starts like the half of it is the same. It was a, it was going to be fine. It's going to skyrocket with because of the new variant, uh, unless we act. And we need to act to keep um, hospitalization levels below the capacity of the healthcare system. But indeed, there is hope because once that uh, that that uh, curve is 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 going to drop uh, at the end, at the end, um, hospitalizations will grow up, down, go down. Um, and basically, what we did was went go went out and measured the effects of these different types of communications. And in a sense, um, both of these uh, helped a little, uh, in a sense. Uh, both of these increased somewhat uh, people's perceptions that strong measures are required. Mm -hmm. um, uh, both of them uh, increased, uh, let me remember, yeah. Both, both, yeah, but 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 importantly, the hope message uh, worked much better because uh, it 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 led to a bigger increase in in how much support there was for strict uh, stringent policies. Uh, it it increased how much people believed that we will be safely get getting through uh, this this new wave. Um, and it also slightly more increased the the presumed adherence for, to guidelines. So it seems that again, um, we do, like authorities don't only need to scare people, but to provide hope, right? And I think it rhymes well with the previous research uh, that that you can do this and and it's going to be fine. Uh, that's an important part of the message. Mm -hmm. What about the acceptance of COVID-19 vaccines? Uh, did you study any specific, for example, individual factors that predicted it? Absolutely. So, so this is a literature, um, and which and it has been uh, even before the pandemic, of course. And there are these different taxonomies or nomenclatures of like 5A or 5C or 7C of like different factors because it's like an extremely complex question, right? What matters and what what does not? Um, we we looked we also and and of course I mean it might depend a bit whether we are talking about like a seasonal flu shot or uh, uh, some of these vaccines which you need to get in childhood or or, or COVID-19, right? So. I thought it would be interesting to look at COVID-19 vaccination specifically across across eight different countries, uh, mostly in, in in the West. And uh, and we looked at four 
big groups of factors. Mm -hmm. uh, one is related to confidence and that basically trust in various uh, institutions and agencies. So like trust in national health authorities and scientists and governments. And, and, um, and we found that this matters a lot. This is probably like the strongest factor that we found. Like, whether you think that you can trust um, your your uh, health authorities, uh, and whether you think you can trust the scientists who develop these vaccines, matters a huge deal. Uh, then there is the question of uh, vulnerability. Let's say right. Um, so it's it's kind of related to your personal personal health. Uh, your concerns about your own well-being, right? Like how vulnerable you are as a person, and uh, and this matters also for for uh, pretty much, uh, right? So again, as always, we find that like older people were like very eager to get the vaccine. Um, people who are concerned for themselves and their family were were pretty eager to get the vaccine. Um, and then the last two groups, which had still had an like a, an effect. Uh, but but smaller, and of course I, maybe I should be more careful about saying a, a fact. These are correlational stuff. So so basically we are looking at groups of people and differences across groups. We are not manipulating these factors. Um, but what we find is that um, personal constraints, uh, right? Which means like okay, how much. Um, how, how easy it is for you uh, to get the vaccine, which which very often is not your own uh, decision, right? But but the, the the situation of the healthcare system and your uh, situation in life, whether you can afford, uh, right? How how much you per, you follow, how much you changed your behavior in the pandemic and follow other types of advice. Um, this matters uh, somewhat uh, to. And the final is, is, is about collective responsibility, uh, which is basically concerned for the community, right? Like uh, how much you think that the hospitals are able to help the sick, how much you trust other people and this kind of stuff. And that also had some, but like smaller influence. And then, uh, and then of course, the million dollar question is, which one of these are amendable, right? How can you change uh, or what can you change, right? And, and in a sense, uh, and and that's a question which we didn't really be wasn't wasn't able to go deep into. We were looking at differences between groups, but then uh, it kind of gets tricky, right? Because I mean, can you build trust in the house authorities in a matter of months, uh, right? I mean, maybe you can try, but it's very hard, uh, especially if you have uh, some groups who had like. Uh, 30 years of bad experience with the health uh, agencies. Um, whereas like ma making the, the vaccine extremely easy to access, right? Uh, remove any constraints and basically just like, if you show up, you get the jab and that's it. No need to register. And these are easier things to do. Uh, even if by, by in the big scheme of things, they, they have a smaller effect, but uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next question is a very important one, but I just wanted to preface it by saying that uh, COVID-19 vaccines are extremely safe and everyone should take them. The, 
The adverse side effects, particularly the most severe ones, are very rare. So, but, okay, but the question is, uh, still all medications have negative features and some side effects. So, after the vaccines came out, should governments have communicated transparently about them? Yeah. So I, I completely agree uh, about the important uh, disclaimer. And, and indeed, I, I would want to note that I think an imp like some side effects were there as well, but also an important difference was uh, in terms of their effectiveness, uh, right? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, decision makers had the dilemma in a sense, right? We've been extremely lucky that that uh, vaccines have been developed uh, very quickly, and many of these vaccines have been extremely effective. Um, some of them have been still pretty effective, but less so, right? Um, and uh, and some of them had uh, small side effects, others almost no side effects. Uh, and from a social perspective, from from the in, in, from the perspective of decision makers, right? You want as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, it's extremely important that whenever there is a free vaccine, someone goes there and gets it. But of course, from the individual's perspective, it's a bit more complicated. And some people were prone to say, "Okay, maybe I don't. I'm not eligible." Um, I'm not eligible for these fancy new mRNA vaccines just yet, but I don't want to, to take these uh, slightly less effective, uh, uh, teeny tiny bit more um, uh, larger side effect uh, alternative vaccine. I'll just wait for two months uh, for, for the, uh, the, the best possible vaccine. And of course, uh, from, from the community's perspective, that's terrible. Yeah, right, because even if if uh, even if the, the the effectiveness on your personal is like slightly less lower, uh, it can make a big uh, positive effect on the community level to 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 reduce these transmission change. And we were thinking about okay, uh, what should decision makers do in this uh, uh, situation? And again, there are these paternalistic instincts in some decision makers to say like, okay, I'm going to withhold information. I'm just like, say something vaguely reassuring. It's fine, please take it. It's the best thing, which is true, right? But it can it can be a bit mushy. Whereas the alternative is to say, hey, okay, there's this alternative vaccine. Um, admittedly, it's a bit less effective. Admittedly, uh, it has uh, slightly more, uh, slightly higher uh, side effects. Um, we were benchmarking in our experiment to, to to seasonal flu vaccines because, of course, people have no idea about actual numbers, right? Um, so, so, so an, an, an alternative method is to say, okay, vaguely reassure uh, that please do this is the best. I, I won't tell you how good it is or bad, but it's fine, believe me. Or to say. Please do this. It helps the community, uh, even though slightly less effective, slightly more uh, uh, side effects. Um, and what we find is that that the transparent, 
communication is is usually better uh, even if it it involves uh, admitting that something is slightly that that vaccine is slightly more uh, even if the information is slightly negative right mm -hmm. so in terms of vaccine acceptance and, and so this is one again a research which we've done in the US and in Denmark uh, but the results are broadly similar what we see is that there isn't a huge negative cost there is not a huge cost um, to to being transparent about the negative effects so compared to a control condition both being vague and reassuring and being transparent about negative effects reduces the acceptance of the vaccine there is just what can you do about it right um so, so it, and and then transparent negative is a bit worse than than a vague reassuring a message but but not not by much but then there is a real benefit um to 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 being transparent compared to using vague uh messages and part of it comes from uh endorsements of conspiracies so once you, once you start to be mushy as a health authority like uh conspiratorial thinking goes up like people realize like okay they are not telling me something that that sounds uh terrible right and and vague messages have this effect whereas transparent messages whether they are positive or negative don't uh and and perhaps even more importantly um vague messages reduce trust in the health authorities whereas mm -hmm. whereas uh, even negative transparent messages build trust um, so so we think so our, our conclusion was that that given that that this pandemic is a long thing right it's a long game uh, it's best to be transparent even if it means telling hard news in the moment because that's the way to avoid this spiral of of distrust and and conspiratorial thinking which which might make uh, your life much harder uh, down the line mm -hmm. so let's get now into the moralization aspect of things we've teased earlier so uh, at a certain point uh, the covid-19 pandemic were no longer just a scientific public health and medical issue, but also a moral one. So how did that happen and what predicted the moralization of the pandemic and the health advice associated with it? Right. Yes, so an interesting thing has been that most of the research was looking at top-down processes, right? So what the the authorities are saying and doing, uh, right? How they inform the citizens, how they uh, restrict, uh, like, like how they uh, uh, introduce restrictions and this kind of stuff, right? Um, mm -hmm. And of course, that's part of the, uh, the, the picture and an important part. But we argue that the immense behavioral change which we witnessed, like people stopped, people started physically distanced from from like one day to another, right, uh, in many many countries, um, would not have happened if if these processes were not supported by bottom up uh, forces. And basically, what we are saying, meaning by that, is that 
that in, especially in, in, in Western democratic countries, um, these, these, these rules are not enforced by uh, the authorities, right? There is no uh, policeman in every corner restricting you to go down the street. Uh, uh, and and even if there were like these very special and short times where there were like there are no police who is looking at uh, uh, face mask use, uh, there is there like uh, vaccination remains a voluntary thing in many many countries, and still we see that 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 huge parts of society are complying. <coughs> and and what we are thinking that okay we know that that humans do this sometimes right they they do these huge large-scale cooperations and then part of how that happens is to to making moralized appeals to basically say that okay here's a behavior it is the good thing to do and if you break this norm uh it's bad uh right and it, and it's not only bad but if you are a norm breaker you deserve of punishment mm -hmm. and uh, and this is a very instinctive, spontaneous thing that humans do, and we know that it's an important part of the of all sorts of behavioral change, right? So, like a famous example is smoking. Right? We kind of knew that smoking is not great uh, back in uh, I don't know uh, 60s, I guess, when this happened, um, and and still people kept on smoking and exposing others to secondhand smoking, right? But mm -hmm. then when smoking got moralized and sad it's like okay it's it's bad to expose others uh to to second and smoke and you are you you deserve condemnation if you do uh then we saw this this big behavioral change in how how society like yeah how society was organized and basically we were saying like okay it seems that that the pandemic uh is 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 can be a topic where where behaviors get moralized, where where behaviors get this tag that okay this is the good and right thing to do, um, uh, and if you don't do that then then you're worthy of condemnation, you deserve punishment, and and basically perhaps more important is like a behavioral uh, descriptive uh, finding which we had, which again we we use this. Uh, eight country surveys which we were uh, fielding uh, periodically. Uh, and demonstrated that very early on in the pandemic, in all countries, large majorities of, of society thought about behaviors, protective behaviors in the pandemic in these moralized terms, right? So they were thinking that like, well, if you don't follow the advice, then uh, uh, you're, you deserve condemnation. Um, and and also the the other part of this is to say like, okay, lay people is partly to blame for the pandemic right so so if we have a tough situation with the pandemic it's partly because people just don't follow the advice um, and it's and and it happened pretty early and 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 there are some differences across countries there's also some fluctuation in time but but it was pretty strong across uh all countries and all periods and and we've and we've uh did a follow-up uh, with, with vaccination pretty early on, um, and we found that vaccination also emerged uh, as, as this moralized topic that it is your duty, it is the good thing to do to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and about that last bit, uh, there's, it seems that there was also prejudice, both against the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. So how and why did that happen? Right. So it's an interesting question to what extent moralization is a good thing or a bad thing, right? Um, there, there was this... Uh, uh, very interesting good paper which pub which was published just at the beginning of the uh, 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 pandemic by Korn and colleagues um, which basically demonstrated that that people are very easily intuitively think about vaccination as a social contract right again that's like this uh, moralized concept that mm -hmm. that we all do this little thing uh, and then we get a big social benefit uh, uh, and and it basically leads to the implication that maybe that's what we should do, people. Like, we should remind them that it's a social contract, it's your duty to do so. Uh, and, and their evidence is basically showing that, well, people who break the social contract, um, like, people think that the, the, the unvaccinated, yeah, those who break the social contract, basically deserve less generosity. Like, I'm going to withhold some generosity from you. Um, and and that seems fine, right? I mean, generosity is a voluntary thing. Uh, we are generous with those who follow the contract. Uh, and if you don't follow, then I won't be generous to you. Uh, uh, and that's and that seems fine. Like, that's that's normatively okay thing, I think. But But then... And, and again, we, we kind of think that that moralization helped to set in, to lock in these new norms about physical distancing. So in a sense, there is this good part of moralization that, that it, mm -hmm. it, it motivates new behaviors and helps to coordinate with, with big groups. Yeah. Uh, but then there seems to be also a cost of this moralization, and that's what our, our new paper uh, looks into, because we found that like, Part of this moralized rhetoric was pretty strong language against the unvaccinated, even from people who who very rarely uh, use strong language, right? So like mm -hmm. uh, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, uh, said that, oh, I want to piss off uh, the, the unvaccinated, right? Uh, the Danish prime minister also had like a press conference where, where she just went off script and, and used very strong language against the unvaccinated. Um, and so so it seemed that there is a lot of uh, anger at the unvaccinated. And meanwhile, there were a lot of um, reports about the, the unvaccinated also being angry, right, and going into protests uh, and, 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 um, and propagating various conspiracy theories, uh, right, about the negative, uh, completely false negative effects of vaccines. Um, so we were thinking like, okay, there seems to be a tension in society along these lines. And, mm -hmm. and we went out and collected data in 21 countries uh, around the globe uh, and, and basically used these all social psychological uh, paradigm uh, about uh, 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 prejudice uh, or, or uh, discriminatory attitudes in family relations, right? So basically, the the question is like, 
how would you feel uh, if if someone who is unvaccinated married someone in your family? And we had a pretty elaborate uh, elaborate uh, uh, experimental paradigm, um, but but that's the the important bit uh, to figure out uh, whether people are unhappy uh, if someone from the vaccination out group uh, joins their family. And we think the family is an important domain because um, you have control about how your family relations, right? Uh, mm -hmm. um, and, and indeed, what we found is a completely asymmetrical uh, relationship where, where vaccinated people exposed, exhibited very high levels of prejudice uh, against the unvaccinated. It was, it was higher on average uh, than, than, uh, than against um, immigrants uh, from the Middle East. Um, which is quite surprising. We had this benchmark group, which we know suffers from a lot of discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and we found that, that indeed vaccinated people are very unhappy if someone who is vaccinated uh, joins their family. They think vaccinated people think that unvaccinated are uh, untrustworthy, are incompetent. Uh, and of course, they fear of getting infected uh, from unvaccinated people, which, which is understandable. But it's completely asymmetric because meanwhile the the unvaccinated didn't show uh, any prejudice uh, in this uh, study against the uh, vaccinated um, so yeah and and we found that uh, that that in, then and this prejudice is higher in countries uh, where where uh, fewer people died of covid and where which have tighter, tighter, tighter cultures, where, where social norms are more strict and, and more strictly enforced uh, by people. And then we had some follow-up studies where we showed that, that uh, these, these discriminatory attitudes or prejudice, if you will, uh, is, is not limited to the family relations, where there's a bigger concern about infections. It, 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 uh, it works with more abstract others, and, and it's not limited to just negative uh, emotions. Uh, it also extends to, um, to support for restrictions of uh, democratic freedoms, uh, at least in the United States. Uh, and it's also large, not only compared to immigrants, but also to, to other disadvantaged groups like uh, uh, drug addicts and uh, people who have been in prison uh, and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So as a last topic, I would like to ask you two or three questions about the broader social and political effects of COVID. So... Uh, did the pandemic also have any institutional effects? Like, for example, did it contribute in some way to the erosion of system support? Right. Yes. So, so um, we are political scientists and then our group, even though we did a lot of uh, work on compliance and this kind of stuff, uh, we also wanted to investigate these broader effects of, of political attitudes and social relations. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and indeed, it's kind of interesting because a lot of the early research on this have been focusing on these rally around the flag effects, right? That like very early in the pandemic, when people realized that there's this big 
trouble. Uh, as, as, as usual, the, the support for the incumbent kind of spiked. Uh, that, okay, you're the boss, we are behind you, show us the way out, basically, right? And, and we kind of took a longer perspective. Uh, we, we collected data throughout the first year of the pandemic, so uh, in, in three waves, in, 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 in the spring, summer, and late winter of 2020. And we were looking into these broad institutional effects, right? So like how much people think that uh, the, their country is a democracy, democracy and that's a well-functioning democracy, uh, how much they support the political system. Um, and, and we found that um, across four countries, which we, which we studied here, which was Denmark, Hungary, Italy, and, and the US, um, these system support was decreasing throughout the first year of the pandemic uh, and not only and pretty consistently across the four countries uh, and and the various measures which we used in this uh, broad topic and indeed on the micro level uh, we saw that the people who were particularly suffering from the effects of the pandemic um, across various domains from from mental health to economic effects to social uh, isolation um, the people who are suffering the most were most likely to withdraw their system support, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this starts, stands in stark contrast with, with uh, another broad group of uh, variables which we looked into uh, about social solidarity, mm -hmm. uh, right? Uh, because, well, it, it, makes, it makes sense that, well, I mean, there is this uh, there is this huge role that the state and various authorities were playing 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 during the the pandemic, right? I mean, they were informing the society, they were restricting a lot of democratic rights, which might not have been restricted ever in in citizens' lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, so it it's kind of makes sense that like, well, after you've been in the pandemic for ten months. Uh, your support for the system kind of is buckling, especially if you think that uh, it's been terrible. But then again, as we saw that there is this huge social aspect of uh, uh, of the pandemic, right? How much can you trust uh, other people and, and to what extent um, do we need to use surveillance to see what others are, are doing uh, and this kind of stuff? How much should we support them? Um, and and we thought that this, this, this could also be uh, that this pandemic might have some negative effects here as well. Uh, but actually, we don't see any convincing clear trends here. Uh, it, it, there, there, is, there are some stuff which go down, but others go up surprisingly uh, across countries and the variables. And also on the individual level, there doesn't seem to be this, this systematic relationship that when you suffer, uh, more from the pandemic than than you than your social solidarity is going down. Um, so it's mostly about the system and the state. Uh, it appears. Mm -hmm. So uh, just one last question then. Uh, apart from anti-systemic attitudes that might have derived from the psychological burden of the pandemic, uh, have you also studied? political violence is political violence or has it been associated with it as well absolutely we did uh and 
and and it complements this uh, picture very well and uh, uh, and and it's a particularly proud moment as a researcher uh, for for us because we 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 included in the second round of this research some items about uh, radicalized intentions to what extent you think it's okay to go down and and participate in radical protests and, mm -hmm. and political violence uh, and we were able to 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 uh, come out with a preprint um, uh, before the the attack on the u.s capitol in january uh, saying that okay our research shows that that a among the people who suffer from the highest psychological burden uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's also this uh, increased uh, uh, um, uh, support for political violence and, and, and an, increase, an increased radicalization intention, uh, so to speak, and increased uh, support for anti-systemic attitudes. Um, and actually, we found it uh, across uh, all countries that we, we studied, again, these four countries. Um, so, of course, it didn't mean that political violence was a thing in, in, uh, in all countries. It's, it, you need right, more than intentions and attitudes for, for violence to actually happen. But, but we found that the, uh, even if it didn't explode in some places, the, the fuel uh, has been uh, accumulating because of the pandemic. Um, and, and indeed, we have a more recent paper which, which links, again, these types of uh, uh, various measures of political discontent from, from uh, supporting protests and, uh, um, and not supporting uh, the system and linking that to feelings of fatigue in, in the later stages of the pandemic. And again, we found that the people who, who feel that they can't keep up with the pandemic uh, anymore, well, have felt, I guess, um, we're more likely to say that it's okay to protest and, it's, and we shouldn't support the system. Um, so, yeah, so so um, it's kind of interesting because the the, the, uh, the data collection has now uh, ended and uh, we seem to have moved past the pandemic uh, by now, um, even though at the time we, we stopped uh, we still found plenty of uh, tensions and, uh, uh, and and negative attitudes, and it's an interesting question for the future whether whether a, a public interest in the pandemic reduces and hopefully actual uh, um, exposure and sickness goes down, whether these things just disappear uh, or whether they will stay uh, with us. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Bohr, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the Internet? And also, if you want the opportunity to tell us about uh, the stuff you're working on at the moment, any future projects? Right. Um, I'm on Twitter still, uh, even though uh, Twitter seems to be uh, ending as we know it. But... Uh, uh, I'm at uh, Bohr Alexander one uh, on Twitter. I also have a website, uh, alexanderbohr.github.com, I believe. No, alexanderbohr.github.io. Um, 
And, and now I'm, I'm here at the Democracy Institute, which means that I'm increasingly interested in uh, uh, de- and re-democratization, right? Like why uh, some countries uh, who have been democratic at one point uh, are, are struggling to keep that democracy and, and why there is a, actual, a lot of support for certain leaders who are eroding democracy. That's one of my big uh preoccupations at the moment um yeah so i hope i'll find out something and maybe then i can come back and tell you about it for sure uh, that's what i was going to say uh, first of all thank you so much for coming on the show and for your time uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and i would be very happy to have you on again somewhere in the future to talk about the work you've just mentioned Thanks so much, Ricardo. It's been a pleasure. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to help keep the channel sustainable, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal. You have all of the links there in the description box. Even just $1 would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. Finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perger Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordano Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Lenia, John Collars, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingard, Reckenberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Jugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenk, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nalek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Alman, Lida Cosmidi, Saimaf Zal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, and Dr. Bird. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Staffini, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanek, Dom Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardis France, and Thomas Trumbull. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.